0: Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan.
1: My name's Brandt.
0: And this episode, we're talking about SST22 St. Vitus, self-titled. Now, this one, Brandt, it'll be no surprise to you that this one is not really in my wheelhouse. And probably you are a bigger fan than I am. But before I let you get us into St. Vitus here, I do want to say, I was listening to this today... And it's probably the most double kick drum I've ever had in my house ever. <laughs> that is for sure the most double kick drum ever. I, I don't really partake in the double kick drum, the metal that much myself. And there is a fair amount in this. Um, but what I will say is when I listen to this record, I might not be that big of a big of a fan, but I can tell it's really good. Yeah, do you know what I mean when I say that?
1: Yeah. I'm, you know, like I'm the metal head of the podcast for sure. I like all kinds of metal from, you know, classic British stuff, like, you know, new album stuff like, uh, Maiden and, and all those bands and, and, uh, Priest and all the, the early metal stuff. Like, I mean, it's debatable whether you want to consider bands like Zeppelin and Deep Purple metal. I don't, uh, but I'm a huge Black Sabbath fan, have been since I was 12, you know, and, uh, listen to metal all through the eighties. Like most kids, my age, I was a big metal head and, uh, still listen to, I listen to lots of extreme metal, like, uh, black metal and death metal and grind. And I do listen to a fair amount of doom metal. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, doom metal bands that I like until the vocals kick in. And often it's because the singers can't sing. Like one of the most famous doom metal bands is a band called Electric Wizard. I, I just, I can't stand the vocals. For me, the best doom metal bands have really good singers. I think Scott Riegers from Saint, these early St. Vitus albums is an amazing singer.
0: So tell me, as someone who doesn't really follow doom metal, and I'll just say like, I'm not a huge fan of Saint Vitus but I can tell this record is really good. I listened to it a few times and I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about it. I mean, I definitely hear Black Sabbath. I even hear some bands that I really like. There's some reminiscent sounds in there like Soundgarden or The Melvins. I I can I can get into it for those reasons, but for someone like myself who never listens to doom metal, like what kind of Bands are doom metal bands that are that you would recommend that have good singers.
1: Well, one of my favorites is a band called Trouble, who I do mention, I believe, in this upcoming interview with, with Joe Carducci. They uh, go back as far as Saint Vitus for sure, and uh, are still going to a degree. Well, the band Trouble is still going. I believe uh, it's the two guitarists are the kind of the two only original members. And most of the other people from Trouble, including their singer, Eric Wagner, now have a band called The Skull. And Eric also has a band called Blackfinger. And the thing I like about uh, a lot of the doom metal bands I, I like, including Black Sabbath, are almost bluesy. Like Trouble has a self-titled album uh, that came out way later in their career. They signed to Rick Rubin's label in the 90s, Deaf American, and released a self-titled album and it's, it's phenomenal. You know, there's a band also called Candle Mass. They're more metal than, I mean, Trouble's more of a hard rock blues band, but they're, you know, definitely a Sabbath. And the, the interesting thing with Trouble is people always said they were a, uh, a Christian band and you hear that a lot about St. Vitus and they were St. Vitus were Christians. Um, We're going to get to, get to this later. And I think Joe mentions this in the, in the interview, he says they, they added a cross to the, uh, to the logo. And I read an interview with, I think it's Dave Chandler from the band. St. Vitus said, yeah, people thought we were like a, you know, Satanists. So we added that cross to prove that we're not. And, uh, Trouble had a, like an, an album called Psalm nine, for example, (laughs) we're called white metal for a while. I don't know if that's, (laughs) I don't know if they called themselves that or if, you know, but they're not striper, you know what I mean? Like they're not super uh, overt about it, but nor is St. Vitus. I mean, in that same interview where uh, Dave Chandler talks about adding that cross, he also says like, you know, we have songs about acid, (laughs) you know, and smoking pot. So like, it's Um, not like they were striper is the point he's trying to make.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you can definitely get some psychedelic overtones when you listen in when you listen to this Saint Vitus record for sure. Well, um we did mention you mentioned a couple of times we do have a special guest for an interview. Joe Carducci was nice enough to give us some of his time and it's a really fascinating discussion and who better than to talk with um about this release not only because of the connection with SST but he also produced this record so I don't know, do you want to start getting into the history of St. Vitus, Brandt?
1: Let's do that. History lesson, part one. So uh, St. Vitus formed in LA in 1979, and uh, the first three people in the band were Dave Chandler on guitar, Mark Adams on bass, and Armando Acosta on drums. Those three people were in the band for many, many years. Armando Acosta passed away in 2010, but I believe Mark Adams is still in the band. Dave Chandler is for sure still in the band. It's kind of, he's like, uh, you know, Greg Ginn. It's his band. You know, he writes the songs, he uh, directs their, their vision. And when they first started out, they had this guy Michael Quercio, Quercio on bass. And Mark Adams uh, was on second guitar. And... Uh, Michael quits the band, and he went on to, uh, I think, fo- help form the band, the Three O'clock. Do you know them? No. They were part of what's generally referred to as the uh, Paisley Underground scene, along with um, like Rain Parade and the Dream Syndicate and Green on Red. I believe when they first started out, they were called Salvation Army. They got threatened with a lawsuit and had to change their name. But he's a, he he went on to form that band, and so. They couldn't find a new bass player, and they had a gig coming up in a couple weeks, and uh, so Dave switched to bass, or sorry, uh, Mark switched to bass. Dave was singing at this point. Dave Chandler, the guitarist, was singing, and uh, then they brought in Scott Riegers on vocals, and they were called Tyrant as well at this point in time. Right before their first gig, when they brought in Scott Riegers, they changed their name to St. Vitus, which is a... uh, if you listen to the uh, the song St. Vitus on this album, they, they say the word St. Vitus Dance in the chorus. That's a very famous Black Sabbath song, St. Vitus Dance, or St. Vitus's Dance, which is on uh, probably their doomiest album, Volume 4. It's the That's the album that all the, the doom bands reference for sure. So that's definitely a nod to Black Sabbath. And uh, St. Vitus's Dance is like a disease. That's not the actual name for the for the disease, but that's what it's referred to generally. It makes your like limbs twitch involuntarily to the degree that it makes you look like you're dancing, apparently. That's about it for like the early years of the band. I think there's a a lot of other stuff that uh, we should get to with the Joe interview and then we'll uh, maybe follow up after that.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear from Joe Carducci on this. I mean, there are a couple of articles... uh that where he's written about Saint Vitus, he definitely has written about them a ton. In uh, you know rock and the pop narcotic, the one article that I found it was actually kind of uh, a tribute article when Armando Acosta passed away. And one thing he mentions is that there was no longer shot on SST than Saint Vitus, and they really were a very very different band to go out as a release. But there is, is no surprise that the SST guys were huge fans of St. Vitus.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Especially Des, you read a lot about how Des really liked them. And he also uh, helped produce this the, the self-titled album.
0: Yeah, exactly. It was produced by Des Kadina, Joe Carducci, Spot, St. Vitus, engineered by Spot.
1: Let's get into the interview with Joe. History Lesson, Part 2. But I have you uh, starting at the label so- sometime in early '82 and leaving sometime. I think you've said it in maybe Enter Naomi. I have you at leaving around March '86. So that's kind of. W-
2: well, I got there in September, I believe, In September '81, and it's it's possible it was late August, but I I don't think so. I think it was mid September. Okay. And uh, they were still recording, uh, Henry was doing uh, TV Party. They were doing the TV Party, that's the first uh, bit of the Damaged Album uh, Sessions. I mean, really the sort of the end of that record that they were doing.
1: So they're, they're doing the Damaged version, not the single?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. The second one was probably uh, February 82 or something like that. And that was still done at Unicorn, both of those... Both of those records and the uh, Meat Puppet's album, first one.
1: Yeah, who you kind of um, brought with you, I think.
2: More, uh, more or less. They knew, they had played with them. I had no deal with them, but I I knew the woman who was managing them and she had introduced the band to me when I was up in uh, Berkeley still and we distributed that single that um, the Monitor people put out on uh, World Imitation. So, I yeah, I had a, a better relationship with uh, Laurie from Monitor than the band itself. Until then, we were both on SST, basically.
1: Right. As far as the situation with Unicorn, was there any ever any discussion about this particular album coming out as a co-release with Unicorn, or was that kind of just a Black Flag deal?
2: Well, you know, it was, it was Unicorn was a kind of a, a sugar trap. And um, she didn't know. I mean, the the woman who ran Unicorn was named Daphna, and uh, they had about well, I don't even know, but I would guess about five albums out. They had a German pop singer and uh, a second engineer on Dark Side of the Moon, and you know, just a, just a bunch of wacky stuff that they were trying to pitch to a- AOR, I believe. You know, I don't think they had anything that could could have been on pop you know on a pop channel but she you know I don't I don't I wasn't down there when you know Spot first found the studio and then he liked the studio enough to you know probably bring Greg and Chuck over there and then at some point they she probably broached the you know came up with the idea of signing Black Flag and putting the record through her label, which they only paid any attention to that because she had m c a distribution right and um and they liked her i mean she she was uh, we didn't know how flimsy her you know economic situation was, but she she had a, a an in that uh, of the you know, punk era bands, Black Flag would have been the only one that intended to tour to an extent that a major label, um, you know, sort of like full-scale nationwide distribution would have recouped, you know, um, if three records went into, uh, you know, a Topeka, Kansas uh, chain store, uh it, they would sell if they were black flag albums uh if they were dead kennedys they might have you know they might have sold on the name alone but black flag would have been there or or they would have played kansas city and the topeka kids would have you know heard about it or went there right and so you know it was a good idea it's just that right before the release of damaged unicorn lost the um you know the mca dropped the label <laughs> oh, okay. and uh that should have told us that unicorn was not uh healthy and but instead MCA said you know the, the the head of distribution
1: made a moral
2: judgment on the damaged album as if that was the reason and that misled us i think she did broach the subject of taking uh everything we had the meat puppets and we were still looking to put out the punchline and uh, pagan icons also by a uh, second trust that stuff was all ready and and so we said well wait a minute you know me and and uh, greg and chuck see i had come down there i didn't know anything about unicorn and uh i wanted to put everything out through sst because my frame of reference was still you know independent label stuff through systematic to get a you know, to get out to the best uh, um, you know the best shops in the country, which there weren't there weren't very many of them, and so Black Flag was more ambitious than I was. But you know that was all part of replacing Des and vocals with Henry because Des would lose his voice uh, into the you know the second week of a tour. yeah, and they needed someone who you know who could uh, last the whole tour and still have a voice. And uh, so, anyway, yeah, it you know goes on and
1: on,
2: <laughs> what all was going on. But
1: Greg and Chuck asked you to uh, come down and see the band. Uh, I believe they ended up sharing rehearsal space with them, and that's how they first encountered them.
2: Yeah, they we Unicorn was going to move uh, out of West Hollywood uh, all the way to Santa Monica, and again, we didn't know they weren't paying their rent. They weren't paying uh, their lease for the studio. Mixing board, you know, we thought they owned all that stuff, <laughs> and we're paying her rent. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, but Greg was. So, you know, we were a we were her cash cow, basically. Yeah. You know, she could sell the damaged album COD, and we paid her rent. But we we uh, we I was glad to move down to uh, Redondo Beach. That's where all my stuff had been moved to. So. This was probably in March 82. We moved down to Redondo Beach and Unicorn went to uh, Santa Monica. And Black Flag was still practicing in Santa Monica behind Unicorn because they, they had some additional space. And we did some parties there and stuff. Uh, I just um, made digitized the uh, plebes, you know, which were on the Minutemen's label. And I think... Um, uh, the water under the bridge label is gonna release the, the live plebes at the unicorn oh. Santa Monica studios cool. on a, on a cassette. You know, the tape came out pretty good and and um and so but anyway that that's you know, it just happens I've been thinking about that space. Uh, right. Um, but but anyway, yeah, then then things got tense and it was clear that they were going to serve uh Unicorn with a notice of What's the word? Uh, they w- they weren't observing and providing the terms of their resp- you know their um, duties as per the contract. So Black Flag was declaring itself that the contract was void and they were free to record. And so we're down in Redondo Beach and they decide to s- stop using the you know practice pad up there, and then they go to a place in Carson. And it was just a rental uh, um, practice studio for bands called PAX, I believe it was, P-A-X. And uh, Overkill was there. And that's how uh, how Black Flag knew that they could find a place over there. So they went over there and were practicing there. And that's where Overkill introduced them to St. Vitus, who were also practicing there. And then uh, Greg and Chuck one day said... um, there's this band over there, and uh don't you come over and uh listen to them and uh and so that yeah that that uh, is the first time I heard of them and uh and uh went over and checked out their set basically it It's the kind of music I like, so I liked it, but I was immediately worried about you know we still hadn't gotten um all of our back catalog into print or the last of the, um, early recordings released, you know, the Stains album and stuff like that.
1: Now, when you say, uh, it was the kind of music li- you liked, are you referencing like, um, you know, 70s, what we call classic rock now, or were, you, were you guys like aware of bands like Trouble or Witchfinder General or, and that, and those kind of bands? Uh,
2: no, they knew those bands. I, I found out about Trouble from St. Vitus and, um, um, but yeah, I do mean uh, um, s- slower '70s psychedelic rock, and and Black Sabbath is almost you know in its own category. Um, when you first heard Black Sabbath in 1970, you know you couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe uh, that uh, you know you didn't have to sit through the kind of tunes that you know Jethro Tull or Led Zeppelin might put on their records. You just got raw meat <laughs> the whole the whole record and uh so obviously that's where saint vitus started and um and they were just such uh, nice guys you know there was no reason not to get involved with them
1: yeah i guess it's different when you're you know uh, my age when you you don't really have the same perspective because you don't know you don't know a world without black sabbath you know what i mean
2: yeah, I mean my favorite band probably was Steppenwolf, uh and they weren't they weren't
1: they were falling apart,
2: you know, in the late uh, in the early seventies and um you know, John Kay had solo records and then there were you know, Deep Purple was around so you, you you were hearing Deep Purple a lot on the radio and I had some of their records. Um but, you know, there was a lot of filler. And with Sabbath I learned later they would they would do an acoustic uh tune Mostly because that much low end um, takes up more uh, space on a on a vinyl lacquer cut, right? And and so you really don't want a, a more than a thirty minute album, you know. Whereas a lot of bands were getting close to forty minutes on their records. But yeah, we, we my brother had a band in all through the early seventies when we were in high school and. Uh, and uh, they were kind of like an instrumental uh, prog band, mm-hmm. and but you know Hawkwind was another band. You know you couldn't believe you know when you heard their you know their albums. You couldn't believe how cool those were.
1: Now you you mentioned the Stains and Overkill. Was this kind of the same idea? Where um, I think it's it's been referenced before that Chuck and Greg kind of wanted to capture these bands while they were still together and, uh, you know, had a, the current, capture the current lineup before there was changes. Was that kind of the idea maybe with St. Vitus?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we never, you know, we never knew who was gonna stick around, you know, the way Black Flag survived was Greg was obviously, you know, the catalyst for a lot of things, you know, the business and of, Doing the records and um, the the ability to go on the road when no one, no one else was going on the road, you know, without a major label, and so uh, Overkill, The Stains, uh, you know, The Minutemen, Sacred Trust, all those bands were um, probably were recorded because Spot had an easy access to media art, and he lived at the studio in Hermosa. And um, and and the bands could be run through there very quickly, and it would be their you know at first in in Art it was always you know like their debut album, so they'd never been in a studio before, and um, things could be record- recorded and uh, mixed again. Spot could you know remix, and um, and uh, Greg and Chuck were. Uh, with Dez and whoever was in the band in the early years, they were often up in Hollywood or in Orange County, you know, wherever a good gig was going on, they would uh, likely be there to see the bands, but also to flyer their next gig. And so they kind of had their, you know, their finger on the pulse of, you know, everything that was important that was going on in a very large area. And L.A. was, you know, it's still not really understood that L.A. wasn't a scene like, you know, if you say New York or D.C. or Chicago or Seattle had a scene, well, it's like, you know, there were five or six of them in L.A.
1: Scenes, you know, The area
2: is so large. So, yeah, you'd have the Valley, you'd have the South Beach, you'd have Orange County, you'd have Long Beach, Pedro. You know, these areas are quite a drive to get to, you know.
1: I mean, the population of California is higher than the population of Canada, so...
2: Yeah, I guess it would be now, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a reason to move to Canada. (laughs) It's not a reason to move to California, but... (laughs) Good point. You know, Hermosa Beach was sort of a... Hermosa Beach was uh, still a, a funky, hippie crash pad of a beach town. So the surfers and uh, the, the skateboarders, roller skating was a big thing. Rock and roll was a big thing. The Fleetwood Club was down in Redondo Beach, but, you know, that's practically walkable. So, it, you know, it, you, I was just there, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It, it's completely yuppified. There's no way to uh, be able to afford a rent in Hermosa Beach anymore. Yeah uh, there's no more jazz clubs no more you know that there's a coffee a coffee house that's kind of uh, still a, a comfortable place to sit in and it happened to be where Greg and Medea used to the used to live there and Mugger said he would stay there and and they would uh, put the uh, SST tuners solder them together in that in that house and that was across from uh the church right you know just just uh, across from a parking lot on the same same street there. So yeah, there's not not many features around. I was walking around with uh, with um, Abe and
1: uh, Joe Pope from uh, Angst. Yeah, you've got that great picture in I think it's Enter Naomi that kind of uh, uh, really drives that point home. It's kind of got like the, the uh, destinations from that era all kind of laid out. Yeah, yeah, it really. Yeah, uh, Spot
2: helped me. Uh, spot helped me with that together and uh, yeah it's, it. I, you know I mean I think uh, one thing I said at the bookstore you know with uh, Spot and Mugger I said you know that um, there was an interview Henry did once where he said his only regret was he didn't get there sooner Yeah, and then I felt the same way because you knew you had just missed this golden age where you know th- these guys woke up and they were less than a block from you know, the ocean, you know, it's so expensive to even, you know, try to park near the ocean now, much less, you know, live in a crash pad or sleaze by in a recording studio or, you know, something like that.
1: Well, some of your books really kind of, I think, um, paint a picture. I, I remember a story in one of one of the books, it might be Enter Naomi again, where you, you're talking about Spot, you know, would just uh, go down to the beach and have a shower you know, like on yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of those showers you use to wash the sand off your feet or whatever.
2: Yeah, I always kind of felt like they didn't quite appreciate it. I mean, um, you know, so I don't think you know Spot is working on some something of a memoir of those years, uh, but I, I would be surprised if it didn't focus mostly on the music. Yeah. You know, the 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 setting. You know, if you. Grew up in the midwest surrounded by cornfields you know you you know the ocean is just it's just unbelievable yeah. you know to have access to it and uh, they seem to not you know the, the Gins, uh you know raymond pettibone and and greg ginn and um uh, they they um you know i don't i don't think greg uh you know they were thrown out of hermosa beach so in the end they didn't have a choice Um, you know, to move from Long Beach to Texas, I don't think Greg liked to concede that his setting meant that much to him.
1: Yeah. So, uh, on your blog, New Vulgate, you said something along the lines of you, when you saw St. Vitus, you picked up on audio and visual germs references. What, can you expand on that?
2: Well, I mean, they used to put a little quote, uh, from, uh, uh, I think, well, whatever that song's called, "Gimme, Gimme." Uh, in the middle of Saint Vitus, the, the title song, I believe, they um, when they when they played it at the at that practice pad and then live, they would open the song up and and uh, and uh, Dave would play this long uh, guitar noise solo, and in the middle of it, there'd be a uh, you know, part of the theme from The Twilight Zone, and then there'd be this uh, quotation from The Germs. And they were, you know, I asked them to leave all that out of the recorded version, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, I think made, made it a better record, because when you're standing there in a live venue, things can make sense that don't work, you know, listening to the record at home. Right and uh so i don't know yeah i don't know where you i guess in the live record you might hear that i don't remember now if it's on there
1: we'll have to listen for but it. anyway they
2: you know, they they saw the germs and and uh, punk rock and that's probably dave and uh scotty the singer and um mark they they went to narbonne high school and in Lamita and um And they would go to the Fleetwood to see probably everyone who played the Fleetwood, which, you know, included uh, Patti Smith, included uh, the Germs and X. I don't know if Black Flag ever got to play there. But just before Black Flag and the Orange County bands were, you know, capable of filling a hall like that, they were in the audience there. And it was, uh, you know, it was probably, uh, uh, you know, Probably a club that ought to be better documented because that's really where the hippies and the punks drew lines and and um, well they heard the same bands but they also fought you know over um, you know who you know who, <laughs> who owns this club I guess <laughs> and you know for that to be in Redondo I don't know if I ever someone might have pointed it out oh yeah there's the Fleetwood but it was never in business while I was down there it's okay. already gone. But this is the late seventies, you know. In particular,
1: so no, and, no uh, real metal bands around at that time. Like there was no Sunset Strip like metal scene at that time.
2: No, you'd have certain guys who you know got famous there. I think Dubrow had his own band under his name, and then he went on to do what? You know, I forget what the White name. Quiet Other band. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So he, you know, some of these, some of those guys were. You know, lifers, and uh, were rattling around like before. Motley Crue they did London, right. it's like a late glam band. So, you know, there was continuity for that scene, although, you know, it didn't seem like there would be. You know, it was so light, and you know they would they would do whatever it took to get signed. So, it, you know, there's no musical continuity, maybe, but some of those guys were hanging around trying to trying to get on a a project that would
1: fly on the radio,
2: and uh, that's sort of how they related to it all. But they're, you know, probably... I don't know. Yeah, that's what I mean about the Fleetwood. I mean, did the dogs play there? Did the motels play there? These were some of the bands that inspired Greg and Chuck to book their own halls and and do their own promotion. And um, they probably did all all of their stuff up in Hollywood cuz they wanted to get signed uh the motels and and the dogs and uh, uh the, you know the Berlin brats and god knows what the hollywood stars there's a million bands like that up there and they and they you know they were good but they were tended to be a little more uh, you know classic uh, rock and roll or a little bit retro but anyway uh, yeah that's you know gets back to you know these different scenes in in LA that are almost geographic scenes in a way that they aren't in other, in other uh, towns.
1: I mean, it's one of the things that I find really interesting about St. Vitus is they really, from my point of view, you know, seemed like a real uh, anomaly in the sense that, you know, I think of a lot of bands that were trying to play, you know, a classic rock style or even a metal style, I guess, Depends what you consider Saint Vitus to be. Was they were probably doing cover, you know, cover, covers at that time, playing like five night stands at at bars that that did covers and maybe throwing a few originals in. But they,
2: yeah, I mean, they weren't professional. You, you know, to play covers, you really have to be, you know, a kind of a professionally skilled in the sense of identifying chords and and uh, and uh, you know deconstructing an arrangement from the radio and st vitus i don't think could ever play a cover per se i heard him do this song once and and uh, it was um war is our destiny and i said you know it was like the cleanest pop song i'd ever heard heard him do i go why why didn't you guys record that when we did the first album And he goes, well, it's kind of a ripoff of uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, you know, off off of a Judas Priest album. And you know, I'd never heard that, so uh, I I didn't really know what he was talking about. But they were a little sheepish about how derivative it is, maybe, and uh, and um, maybe that explains why you know it just has a a better hook than a typical a typical Saint Vitus song is a um, is a tunneling, you know. Through uh, uh, tunneling through a mountain, as, as I think Cream Magazine put it once.
1: I, I kind of assumed that they were priest fans just based on the the, the name Tyrant, which is what they were called before. They were St. Vitus, which is a, a priest song. So I thought maybe that's where they got well, that Well, people, from.
2: you know, you, you have to know those first two or three Judas Priest songs to even put them in the same ballpark, I guess. Yeah. You know, because once... You know, Black Sabbath talks about having a meeting with the management that took over Judas Priest and put him into, you know, leather jackets and everything. And uh, they couldn't uh, take it seriously. Yeah. Um, they knew that they, they couldn't play roles and play dress-up the way that um, Judas Priest did. Yeah. And then, you know, music,
1: you can tell those records are just pop pop records. So the you late, the
2: middle one ones.
1: so you went into the studio with them
2: for st. Vitus yeah yeah. yeah yeah we des and I uh, des was really into them and he he's you know a 70s guy he he didn't really ever listen to hardcore or you know except for when they were playing with bands that were you know uh, hardcore or or uh, you know of that when when des is can put a record on the turntable. You know, it's going to be either Mountain or ZZ Top or uh, Johnny Winter or you know, uh, a blues album, and um, and so he was excited that they were on the on the label.
1: And this would have been the one of I think the first uh, recording the label used uh, Total Access for.
2: Yeah, because I, I remember we we got back down to Redondo Beach and you know, Spot started looking around for um, a replacement for media art because um, he knew it had been uh, taken apart and, uh, but he didn't know that one of the partners then uh, opened up total access um, just a little bit inland from, uh, from uh, media art in Redondo beach. And so he went around and checked it out and looked at it and uh, and uh, saw that beyond the you know the two rooms that they had, they had intention to you know they rented this empty raw space, which was the size of the studio that they had finished, and so Spot got the idea of putting the band into one this this you know, great big uh, space and uh, just run the cables out to there. The band was, uh, you know, they were amateurs, so they they couldn't play anything but the live arrangements that they were playing. You know, and so when Dave played a solo, there was, you know, no guitar underneath the solo carrying on the riff. Uh, they couldn't play the songs instrumentally, you know, without the singer in their ears, so they knew where they were. And so, basically, we had to do a live record, right. which, you know, was usually what we did, but it's just that with St. Vitus, you, you know, as I went along with them in the studio, each recording, each time we did a, a new album, we tried to improve the... Um, recording of the album by changing slightly how we how we put it together so you know that's that's so once you get to the later records they're playing uh the riffs all the way through and then overdubbing the solos so that you know you have a riff sound setting and then you reset the solo sound so that it's a little bit less accidental
1: so it was recorded in 82 but it didn't come out until 84 i'm assuming just because of for financial reasons how was how did that sit with the band were they pressured you know
2: well they were very patient yeah. <laughs> some some bands you'd never hear from you know it's like uh, the meat puppets or saint vitus um they would record you know they'd record the album and then um with the meat puppets we got the album out but then it was out of print for a year for St. Vitus we recorded the album and then we didn't go back in to mix it for a year but uh those bands were not uh, careerist you know they weren't yeah. um animated with the same kind of energy that say the Minutemen or uh Husker Du were and um and you know and some guys they just don't use the phone yeah. you know don't they, they don't call you to find out what's going on they just i guess they seemed like they just trusted it would come out when it came out and they have to worry about it
1: there was no like backlog of material like uh you know black flag when they couldn't release anything for a few years where you know saint vitus was
2: not well there was probably a backlog um uh there they were always um we we probably saw them play a gig with overkill and um But I don't believe we started putting St. Vitus onto the books, you know, the the gigs that we booked around Black Flag or mm, the Minutemen and and Saccharine Trust and the Meat Puppets until we got the album out. Then we were more involved in putting them out in front of people. And and at that point, you know, you sort of learn who they are. The first thing they had to do is learn not to drink so much beer. You know, while they're waiting around during sound check, because you know they they would would get a little bit too uh, a little bit too drunk. You know, by the time they actually have to play, <laughs> and uh, so you know they they were learning and they were you know real easy guys to he um, could point things out to them without them you know getting their back up.
1: When you did start putting them on SST packages, how were they received?
2: Well, I remember the the first time they, play, they p- opened for Black Flag was, you know, I want to say Fenders in Long Beach. It wasn't Fenders, it was Dancing Waters, and uh, maybe that was in San Pedro. And uh, they're both kind of like big halls that did a lot of punk rock shows for a while. But uh, they opened, and um, Henry went out there and uh, introduced them. And that was, you know, to keep anybody who wanted to fight hippies from from going to it, you know. I, I don't know if we would have had that problem, but that's how they dealt with it. Right. Because you know it was a it was a pretty pretty big uh, house full of uh, by when was that? That was '84. So <clears throat> Black flag didn't have um, this uh, knucklehead uh, crowd anymore. Those people had gone to Circle One or uh, suicidal tendencies. You know, they got simpler music, yeah. uh, at those gigs. And so, you know, we didn't have a problem and we don't know if we, we might've had a problem. So Henry went out there and, uh, you know, gave them sort of the benediction, I guess you'd say by then Henry had long hair. You know, so.
1: <laughs> and did that work? Yeah,
2: they, they, yeah, they were very good. And, um, you know, it was so slow that, um, you know, the, the music, the songs were so slow. You, you sort of uh hoping people are patient enough but you know like you can imagine they there was nobody um you know it's almost like Black Sabbath didn't really have any influence on other bands until 10 years later yeah you for know sure. when you could say Metallica and Saint Vitus and you know that style of uh whatever you call it the the tuning and and the pace mm-hmm. and of course Saint Vitus didn't have any of Black Sabbath's high end, you know, except in the solos and the voice.
1: There's a great quote in that Decibel magazine uh, article on Born Too Late, where Armando says uh, they were getting abuse at some gig, and uh, he he basically said, if you guys don't lay off, we're going to play our longest, slowest song.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that, but yeah.
1: I like that approach. Yeah,
2: that's... Yeah, the uh, the Walking Dead was, uh, you know, was uh, could really hear the um, the room, the size of the room, and the slapback echoes when when that song, you know, it's so slow, and when the guitars drop out and it's just Armando's drums, you really can hear the size of that room in there.
1: The, no, that track was recorded at this session, right?
2: Yeah, it was all there was. The album plus the three songs on the walking dead 12 inch okay and uh, i'm trying to think did darkness was did we use that on the blasting concept Two? i think that song may have come off of that i forget now but anyway yeah that was the extent of everything that they had ready to record so that's what we did and so we had some extra stuff but uh you know i think other than asking them to maybe cut out that live uh a solo from the St. Vitus tune, I think we let them decide what that was going to be on the album. I don't remember us choosing what would be on the record or not. Just being worried about how long the record would be since you want to get all that low end on it.
1: Now for the release itself, um, you guys used a uh, a silver embossed logo.
2: Yeah, yeah. What was the, yeah, the, what was the, the um, decision there? Well, we weren't sure, you know, whether we could sell a lot of their records. So I was thinking like, you know, how do we how do we make a nice cover but avoid a full color, you know, color separations that cost about $400 and, uh, you know, to to run a 1000 a sleeves and um, you know, we even then we were sending out probably 250, 300 free copies of an album. So we knew we weren't going to make any money on the first 1,000 records. But I checked into uh, you know where we could emboss it, and um, and it turned out that you know, you'd print the cover, then it would go to the emboss, well, embossing company, then it would go back to the album printer, and they would assemble it. And that could be done for cheaper than a full-color cover and so we decided to do that because it would mark the record you know differently from the rest of the uh label okay and um uh, and then you know when when we put their we went to the typesetter with their name and had it you had them use the gothic the the v just looked like a big u <laughs> you know if you if you look and see what real gothic is so I cut out a, uh, a V that really looks like a V and um, and then, uh, you know, tried to uh, draw, draw the filigrees to it so that it looked gothic.
1: And then their idea
2: was to put the cross in there. And then later on, they, I think uh, Dave, redrew on top of the logo. And then they used that more, you know, it had a more of a, a handmade look to it. Okay. So after the, First album, though they changed the logo, but it's still basically a, uh, a gothic thing. It just looks more like a DIY version than a type type set.
1: And I could be mistaken, but I believe this is the um, the first time we see a Naomi Peterson photo on an SST release.
2: Yeah, the the um, she she showed up in um, probably July. Well, I'm, I guess I met her before then, but. July 82, she starts uh, working for us, um, and either St. Vitus or Saccharine Trust are the first. um, God, you know, now that I think about it, she shot Saccharine Trust at that unicorn in Santa Monica. And so she may have been, you know, maybe I'm wrong, and it's earlier in 82 when she starts shooting the bands. She must have shot Saccharine first, and then St. Vitus, we started asking her to shoot them before we had the record out and then um i was i sort of brainstormed with her well how can we how can we you know get a psychedelic treatment out of these photos and so her idea was the infrared black and white and that's what uh, what she did and that's in a Torrance uh, cemetery not too far from where we were in redondo so they sort of ran through there and shot a bunch of stuff uh, there's some really good stuff that hasn't been used it's all infrared so it's got that um, glowing uh, feel to it and so yeah I you know I kick I, I forgot to put her name on the cover you know it pissed me off that I you know you're trying to rem- keep all these details organized because you've got to do the labels you've got to uh, amass all this information and
1: get everything organized
2: and and the, the inner sleeve thank god they they put her name in there on that so that's where the credit is <laughs> but uh, they you know they they have these long lists of thank yous and stuff i mean they were you know such uh, nice guys and like i said they didn't really uh hold the delays against us you know i mean they didn't even want to leave sst after when they couldn't get a hold of greg for so long you know they had this offer from germany and it's only that greg didn't get back to them that they finally just decided to take the offer right go to you know have a record in a record label and a career in germany basically for years that was the way it was
1: so as i mentioned uh joe we're we're working our way through the catalog here and we haven't heard some of the later stuff any uh kind of hidden gems you can recommend that we can look forward to
2: well yeah, I mean, I don't, I have not, I got thrown off the promo list, you know, at, <laughs> in 88 probably. I, uh, I, of the early stuff, after I left, I would say the Opal record is really nice. And uh, the second uh, Universal Congress of uh, uh, Album, uh, Prosperous and Qualified, is, you know, masterpiece. Uh, sonically, too, you know, Vetus Matare is is you know, he was in, um, The Last, and, mm-hmm. um, I always thought the records he produced sounded so good, I didn't quite understand why more bands didn't ask to have him record them. Yeah. He played keyboards for The Last, and, um, had, you know, always, had, always got a real nice warm sound uh, for bands.
1: Joe, where can people find out, uh, more about you or, uh, or order your books?
2: I have my local, uh, bookstore night heron books um they they make all of them available and then they also uh uh stock amazon with the the rock book and the naomi book and my new film book stone mail and so those three are available quickly and cheaply at amazon and then uh anthology and the uh Wyoming stories collection those you know are available you know from Night Heron if you're really looking to get everything uh, that I put out Night heron is the best
1: uh, we'll put a link to that on our uh, social media and on the oh, okay. in yeah. the podcast now that I'm,
2: I, I double check on that uh, that Vitas Matari did the uh, Universal Congress of Records. some uh, maybe I'm wrong about that I know spot didn't work on it. But uh, I think that's the case in, in that. But, you know, I know that there's records, you know, beyond that where, you know, that those, you know, those uh, poor bastards were uh, releasing more records than, you know, the majors.
1: Yeah. And,
2: uh, you know, I, I I picked up here and there some stuff, but I wish I had more of it and could tell you more about, uh, you know, I just put together a list of addresses for... Uh, SST offices okay. in ancillary places like Global and uh, and Cruise, and you know there was a guy at Book Soup in West Hollywood. He is an ex-cop, and he said there were fans of Black Flag in the LAPD, and uh, <laughs> and he's some sort of a history buff, and he wondered if I I could give him a list of of and that and that you know working that out was kind of interesting. So I've been putting that together.
1: Very cool. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Joe. Uh, it was really great that you took the time to uh, speak to us today, and I, I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for the interest, yeah.
1: Okay, well, thanks to Joe for uh, for laying that all out for us. That was uh, a lot of information that I did not know about St. Vitus, so...
0: Definitely not. Uh, and just, we've been really lucky with the people we've been able to interview, uh, and Joe is no different. Uh, we very much appreciate him taking the time. A very gracious, very humble guy. I mean, his writing is very, very powerful, especially in rock and pop narcotic. Very opinionated, but he just seems very, very diplomatic about everything, and uh, we just really appreciate him sharing that information.
1: Yeah, and he you can tell um, that he's a, a huge St. Vitus fan. He talks about them a lot in Enter Naomi, on, uh, that WFMU interview that I've mentioned a few, t- a few times. I think it's called the, the show's called Diane's Kamikaze Fun Zone. Him and Mugger were on it together when, uh, Enter Naomi came out. And, uh, he talks about him a lot on there. And you also sent me a link to, uh, his blog, The New Vulgate, where he, uh, like you mentioned, he, he wrote kind of almost a, I don't know if you'd call it an obituary for, uh, Armando Acosta, but it's definitely, he's definitely like, uh, that was the impetus behind him writing it, I would say was, was Armando's passing.
0: Yeah. A tribute for sure. Yeah. It's interesting too, to hear Joe talk about it and then listen to the album though, like the bottom end on that album. And I, I was, I was kind of joking before, like I've never had that much double kick drum in my house before, but it's a real boomy sounding record and about how they had thought you know well why don't we put out a single by these guys and it's like well we can't fit a song on one side of a single we don't and we don't actually have we wouldn't have the appropriate width of groove on the vinyl to capture that bottom end
1: yeah and I mean the thing that I think is so cool about them being on the label is it's so like um you you really have to think back, like there was no, you know, I kind of said this in the interview, but there was no real, you know, all that sunset strip stuff that came, that came later. Like they talk about Motley Crue a little bit. Um, He talks about it on that WFMU interview. I was going to ask him about this, but I forgot, but he says something like, uh, I don't know how much you know about the first Motley Crue album, Too Fast for Love, but they released that themselves. and yes. uh, and put it out on, I'm pretty sure on vinyl, on their own le- record label called Leather Records. Totally different mix. It's since been released on CD, on a, on a box set. And they were, there was no like, I don't know, like I don't like the term hair metal. But there was no hair metal scene. Like none of those other bands even existed yet. And uh, so Motley Crue had this album out. And this is when they were at Unicorn. Either Motley Crue themselves or their manager at the time brought it by Unicorn. And they, the black flag was there, and they listened to it in the studio. And at one point, tossed around the idea of like trying to convince uh, uh, what's her name, the the owner of Unicorn, to put it out, put it out on Unicorn, and uh, let uh, Chuck and Greg kind of take over A and R at Unicorn.
0: Well, I've never heard that. Yeah, <laughs> that would be wow. Would history ever be different now?
1: Yeah, no kidding. But I mean my point is like that, that scene didn't exist. The Bay area thrash scene that was, you know, years away, you know, Metallica, is that like Metallica, yeah, Metallica yeah. and uh, Exodus, Exodus and, and uh, all those bands that's, that doesn't exist yet. And so like, they were really interesting that they were doing that. And like you said, before we went to the Joe interview, it's, it's really no surprise that the band liked them. And there's a cool Mugger quote, I think it's in Enter Naomi, he says uh, we made them feel accepted because we liked their music, they knew we had an appreciation for that style. Like we've said before on the podcast and, and they've said themselves at various points, like they were all classic rock fans.
0: Yeah, that that article in the New Vulgate mentions about, again about how much Des really liked uh, Saint Vitus and it talks about how, like, when Des was going to listen to tunes, he was more likely to put on, like, ZZ Top or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean, you hear a lot in later interviews, like, especially Henry Rollins talks a lot about what they were listening to in the van, and pretty soon, Ozzy's going to be out of Black Sabbath, and they're going to be bringing in uh, Ronnie James Dio, and then um, Ian Gillen from Deep Purple. And Dio, of course, was in Rainbow, both... Pretty, you know, classic rock bands. I remember reading Henry somewhere says like Greg Ginn got into that heaven and hell album, which is the, the first album they did Sabbath did with Dio. And he's like, when Greg Ginn got into something like look out, he's like, we <laughs> listened to that album like 24 seven and it's a great album. It might be Sabbath's best, best album. Like it's an amazing album, you know, so they were listening to all that. They were listening to Dio. After, you know, he left Sabbath, they were listening to ZZ Top.
0: What what about the Pink Fairies? Like, um I I read that Dez turned on Rollins to the Pink Fairies and turned on Rollins to a lot of classic rock. And for example, that song, Do It, Rollins Band does that song.
1: Yeah, they do a lot of that kind of stuff, you know. Rollins Band does, like, Move Right In. You know, like, these are bluesy songs, and uh Rollins Band is... A pretty heavy band. Oh yeah. So, Hey, I was doing some digging around speaking of metal. I buy this metal magazine called Decibel, which in my opinion is really like the authority on this kind of stuff and, and what, and metal in particular. But what I really like about the magazine is they, you know, they cover all kinds of metal, like everything from extreme metal to like more of the stuff you would listen to, like, uh, like the Melvins or like, and they have, uh, they have a thing called the hall of fame and each episode yeah. they, they induct an album into the hall of fame. And one of the things that one of their criteria is every single member of the band has to participate in it. It's like a, they get interviewed for it. Right. And so some albums are automatically excluded. If like say a Aussie album that had Randy Rhodes on it, you wouldn't be able to do that because Randy Rhodes is dead. And uh, so they do a St. Vitus album born too late, which is, and these are classic albums, right, that they're inducting into their into the Hall of Fame. So these are like... Born,
0: and Born Too Late is the one that you read about a lot.
1: Yeah. But, like I say, the magazine, it doesn't just... Like, they do uh, End of Silence is one of the albums they do later on.
0: I love that album. Yeah, it's one Still of my favorites.
1: It. And they do Jesus, Lizard, Goat. It's a cool magazine, you know. Really?
0: That's a metal mag? Yep. Yeah. Those are two of my favorite records of all time. Well,
1: they do, you know, they cover some noise rock and stuff like that, you know? And they, so they had an issue, a special issue that came out a while ago called The Hundred. I think it's The Hundred. Let me grab it here.
0: That record, The End of Silence, got me through grade 10.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a killer album. So yeah, they did a special edition called The Top 100 Doom Metal Albums of All Time. And Born Too Late like, I'm not going to go too far into this, because we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to that one. Uh, but it's, I think it's, like, in the top 10.
0: What kind of Doom records in the top 100 would I have any clue about?
1: Uh, well, do you know Cathedral? Nope. Fairly famous um, Doom Metal band. Well, they've got stuff like Deep Purple in here, Troubles in here. Sleep, do you know Sleep?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I watched on YouTube a number of years back, like a Doom Metal documentary off and on and yeah. i i mean i remember sleep in that one
1: sleep's pretty famous band
0: do they have those album covers that are like the desert or something
1: i don't know they i'm I not a huge sleep guy matt pike their kind of main guy went on to form high high on fire which is probably my favorite metal band uh right now down you know down fill Down. yeah
0: i like black sabbath
1: yeah well, is, Sabbath, that? I mean, every Sabbath album's pretty much in here. Uh, Blue Cheer, uh, Witchfinder General is a pretty famous doom end that was around at the same time as, uh, as Trouble and uh, St. Vitus. I don't know who else is in here. Caius, The Obsessed, which is uh, Wino's band.
0: I like Caius.
1: Yeah. Earth. You know, Earth. So, which
0: chi- which Caius album would be like Blues for the Red Sun? Would that be the one that goes in there?
1: I'm sure it's in here. Uh, Welcome to Sky Valley is in here for sure.
0: I uh, thought Doom had to be slower because Caius is pretty sped up on some stuff.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it doesn't all have to be slow. I mean, Sabbath wasn't all slow. You know what I mean?
0: No, that's right, too.
1: Pentagram's in here, like. You maybe have heard of that documentary about them.
0: What about the sing- the second singer for Saint Vitus, Wino? He was in a band, right? He's
1: Obsessed? in a he's in a bunch of bands, all all fairly doomy. Uh, Spirit Caravan, Hidden Hand, Obsessed. He's got solo albums, just as Wino, that are kind of acoustic. Yeah, the, all of that stuff's in here. Or Obsessed is for sure. They're they're really good, but they're more of a classic rock band.
0: I'm gonna give this record a couple more listens because I mean it was definitely definitely not on my radar the only saint vitus that i ever came across would have been on like it's probably on those program annihilator compilations or something but there were elements of this when i was listening to it that i could appreciate so yeah i don't know maybe i'm going to become a doom metal fan
1: well there's good good stuff and then there's there's not good stuff but what I, what i have to say about it is like i wrote some notes on it and a lot of my notes really talked about Scott Rieger's vocals. Because, you you know, I think a lot of people think St. Vitus, you know, they think of Wino. But I mean, I, I just thought his vocals were amazing. And then I remembered that I had this doom metal b- book, this top 100, and I was like, well, let's see if St. Vitus is in it. And the first sentence in the uh, little write-up on them says, uh, and this is by a guy named Jeff Wa- Jeff Wagner, he says, Scott Rieger's is the greatest doom metal vocalist ever ever. There. I've said it in print. The harrowing fright he conveys with that weird-ass voice, that's why. His shivering, lurid, macabre delivery is every bit as wretched as Ozzy Osborne, Circa Volume 4, and taken a few steps further into decay. He goes so far as to say, why know who? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I must admit, when I was listening to this, for someone who... As metal as I get, and I guess as doom as I get, it definitely reminded me of Aussie-era Black Sabbath now and then. Yeah. But his uh, I would say Scott Riegers has got his own own voice, though. It's unique. It's unique for sure.
1: Do you want to do the ballot result?
0: Let's do it. Ballot result.
1: Does that mean I get to pick?
0: It definitely does.
1: Okay, well, there's a few tracks I really like on this. The track that really stuck out for me is called The Psychopath. I kind of thought it was maybe like the centerpiece of the album. It's long. It's like seven minutes long. The vocals are really dramatic. Uh, I just love his vocals. It's almost sounds like King Buzzo, or I guess the other way around, because uh, King Buzzo or Buzz Osborne wasn't, you know, probably even playing in a band at the time this came out. Um, early
0: Buzz. It sounds like early Buzzo. Yeah. Right?
1: For Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like gluey porch treatments era. Exactly. But, but his vocals are kind of operatic, almost at times. I really like him. He ended. He came back into the band at one point too. Scott Riegers did. They did a uh, an album in '95 called "Die Healing," and uh, he also toured with them again in 2016. Uh, the Obsessed are back together. I don't know if you knew that, but they put an album out this year that's really good. So uh, he's been touring with Vitus a little bit. they still play together like they're still they same Vitus did an album a couple years ago for me Dave Chandler is not like an amazing guitar player he writes all the songs so you've got to give him credit for that but as far as you know the riffs are fairly rudimentary I don't think having you know you can be cre- pretty creative with doom which is like <laughs> I mean it's not easy to write a doom metal riff you know what I mean
0: It's not easy to write a unique one, is what I would say. Because I've, I mean, what I've heard of it, it just, it sounds very, some of it can sound a lot alike, each other.
1: Yeah, but what I do like about this, and uh, I mean, by all accounts, this was recorded live off the floor. You know what I mean? I've found actually a recording note that says uh, they uh, began recording at 10 p.m. on August 16th, 1982, and it goes until 9 a.m. the next day, 10 hours for 200 bucks. And they recorded, as Joe mentions in his book, or in the interview, he says, uh, you know, they recorded three more tracks, <laughs> three or four more tracks. I can't remember beyond what's on the album. They're going to come out later on a, on an EP called The Walking Dead that we'll get to. Um, yeah. This was recorded basically live off the floor. And uh, if you listen to the the track, the Psychopath. Dave is he- channeling Jimi Hendrix big time. You can totally tell he was a Hendrix fan. He's like getting, you know, that Hendrix song "Machine Gun," where he gets yes. all that insane feedback and stuff. He's tr- yep. he's doing that kind of stuff, like getting feedback, and he's using a he's using a flanger and a wah pedal. It's really good. I really liked it. So that's my pick, the Psychopath.
0: I'm I'm with you on that. I'll go with it. I mean, I I don't have much to add to that other than um it's an interesting comment about it being recorded live because i was reading something about the recording and how the drummer had like this massive kit right yeah just massive massive kit and racks of toms and and the floor toms were bigger than most people's kick drums something along the lines though like spot when he miked it he didn't have to use that many mics when you talk about this album being recorded live The drums in particular for me sound live. And by that by that I mean there's a bit of bleeding, not a ton of separation, and a lot of natural reverb sounding. And I really like that. I mean that's part that's part of the reason I really like, you know, like Steve Albini recording.
1: You would think it sound it would sound more echoey because they recorded it in a giant like concrete room by the sounds of things. Joe Carducci often refers to it as a raw space. But as far as his drums, uh, there's another good quote in that um, Decibel article about on Born Too Late where t- he's talking about how they toured with Flag and how fla- hostile the audiences could be sometimes. I think I maybe mentioned this in the interview with Joe, but they're throwing coins at, at the band. And uh, he can see them like pinging off his cymbals and stuff like that. He says like, we never gave up the stage. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, they were dedicated. I think we pretty well covered off the artwork in the interview, but we did not discuss the runout grooves. And there are some interesting ones on the, uh, the album. Side A says, silent aerials, this quieting. Ooh, that's spooky. Yeah. And the flip side says, worshipping volcanoes on virgin knees. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Love that. Well, I think that's it for St. Vitus.
1: Ryan, what's next week?
0: Black Flag, My War.
1: My favorite release on SST, hands down. Strap yourself in. I mean, we're we're going to get to a lot of stuff I've never heard before, but I can't imagine anything will replace My War for me.
0: I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Well, maybe we'll talk about it a bit on the next episode, but one of the reasons that I really like that story about how Husker Du come together, and we spoke about this in the metal circus, is people bonding over records, and one of the very first records that you and I bonded over was My War, and when you came over to my place for the first time and you pulled it out, and I had a copy on vinyl, and you're like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Fast forward 20-plus years later,
1: Yeah. I still listen to it all the time. It's an, it's, it's my go-to album for sure. Thanks for tuning in everybody. Uh, leave us some feedback on the, uh, interview with Joe Carducci. We love hearing that stuff. So, uh, and thanks for tuning in and thanks a lot to Joe Carducci for, for participating and, uh, being on the podcast. He was very, very accommodating.
0: Yeah. And a hell of a nice guy.
1: Yeah, totally. Thanks for tuning in everybody.